Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tonight on Piers Morgan Uncensored in New York City, the face and voice of Britain's national broadcaster, Hugh Edwards, is dramatically named as a suspended BBC presenter at the centre of a scandal over alleged sex images that's gripped the country. Edward's wife, Vicky Flynn, released a statement tonight naming her husband and detailing his serious mental health issues, explaining he's now receiving treatment in hospital. We'll have all the latest on this huge story. Plus, he's a Kennedy, a controversialist, now a candidate for President of the United States. RFK Jr. has rattled the race for the White House by daring to say many things that nobody else will. And a lot of people are supporting him. But can he win? He joins me live. Live. From New York, this is Piers Morgan Uncensored. Well, good evening and welcome from New York City to Piers Morgan Uncensored. It's difficult to overstate how big of a deal it is back in Britain that Hugh Edwards, the face of British news, really, the face of BBC News, has now been named as the presenter at the centre of this huge scandal that's been raging in the last week in that esteem... He's the face of our state occasions, of royal events. He's the man who announced the death of the late Queen. He's wry, he's authoritative, and above all, he's always been trusted. By all accounts, the audiences love him. I know him personally. He's always seemed to be a very uh, stand-up guy. So today's news that he is the presenter behind the BBC sex picture scandal is a huge shock to everyone that knows him, maybe to his family, certainly to millions of people who are used to watching him uh, on the news each night. Uh, probably a shock to his colleagues at the BBC. For the last five days, speculation has raged about the man at the heart of the crisis. Tonight, his wife, Vicky Flynn, the television producer with whom he has five children, took the courageous decision to end all that speculation. In a statement, she said, I'm doing this primarily out of concern for his mental well-being and to protect our children. Hugh is suffering from serious mental health issues. As is well documented, he's been treated for severe depression in recent years. The events of the last few days have greatly worsened matters. He suffered another serious episode and is now receiving inpatient hospital care where he'll stay for the foreseeable future. Once well enough to do so, he intends to respond to the stories that have been published. She goes on to confirm that Edwards didn't know about any of his claims until last week. She made a call for privacy and she adds that Hugh is deeply sorry that so many colleagues had been impacted by the speculation. And that's a key point. The, spe the speculation was becoming completely unsustainable. Many other male BBC presenters were being shamed and vilified on social media for something they had nothing to do with and had to, in some cases, publicly deny their involvement. Viewers were bound to notice that Hugh Edwards had vanished overnight from the nightly news bulletins. Now, clearly, Hugh Edwards is now in a very serious situation. 
He probably feels like he's losing everything. Whatever the outcome of the investigations, it would be inhuman not to think about the impact of all this on him, on his family, on his mental health. All of those are important things to consider now. But now we can talk freely about who this is. It should also be clearer why it's been such a big story. The Met Police says it has no evidence of criminality, but what remains are allegations about a potentially serious abuse of power by a household name paid handsomely from the public purse. Accused originally of paying tens of thousands of pounds to a teenager with drug problems for indecent images. More claims about his behaviour have followed from three other people so far, including allegations made not just to The Sun, but directly to the BBC. And the way the BBC has managed this complaint remains a matter of legitimate public interest and concern. We shouldn't forget the other people involved in this story because there are a lot. Well, I'm joined now by my pack, the best-selling author of War of the West and columnist Douglas Murray, former Conservative MP Louise Mensch and the multimillionaire investor, one of the sharks on the American reality tank, Kevin O'Leary, uh, the former executive at Channel 5 and also worked at the BBC, David Elstein. Uh, but first, let me start by talking to the former BBC political correspondent and current Times radio presenter, Carol Walker. Carol, thank you so much for joining me. Um, this is an unbelievably complex and difficult story. It has been from the start because I'm sure you, like me, and most people in the media very quickly discovered that it was Hugh Edwards. Um, but that name was not being made public. And as a result, there was this feeding frenzy of speculation driven by social media about who this could be. That was, of course, very damaging to all those concerned. But as somebody who knows Hugh Edwards well, what is your reaction to all this uh, turn of events today? The police saying that they found no evidence on that initial story of any crime being committed. Uh, and secondly, his wife's decision to go public in naming him and revealing he's having these serious mental health issues in hospital. Well, I think, to be honest, Piers, my first thoughts are for Hugh's family and for Hugh himself. He's clearly uh, had a very serious mental health problem. Uh, he is being treated in hospital for that. And it must have been an unbelievably difficult time for his wife and the rest of his family. She's clearly taken the decision that she had to speak out tonight. Uh, that can't have been easy. Uh, and I think that, really, we do have to respect and understand why she's now asking for some time for the rest of the family to uh, try and ensure that he gets the right treatment and, and to get on with their own lives. I think the other important thing to say here, Piers, is that, of course, none of the allegations about Hugh has actually been proven or established beyond any doubt. The police have now mm. said that they are not going to carry out any sort of investigation. And I think that what we're left with here is, though there are clearly some questions about how the BBC may have handled this, it does underline the complexity of all of this. You know, I worked alongside Hugh when he was uh, a rising star as a political correspondent, one of a number of very ambitious and talented BBC figures, including some of those uh, like Jeremy Vine, who found themselves unfairly targeted. And I think that it does also just highlight that issue of how people who are such huge public figures uh, can also then find themselves targets, not just perhaps of some justified complaints, but also of such huge amounts of speculation and rumours, as we've seen over the past few days, swirling around on social media. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't disagree with any of that. All I would say, though, is there seems to be a sort of growing 
uh, criticism of the way the Sun has handled this, but to be clear, they didn't name him to start with, and they didn't say that what he'd done was a criminal act. That was others, actually, that were commenting on this potentially straying into the area of criminality. Also significantly, the BBC themselves have also been exposing their own stories and their own investigation into Hugh Edwards' alleged inappropriate conduct. And in fact, today, I think there were more uh, revelations from the BBC about his uh, allegedly inappropriate behaviour towards colleagues. So it's not just a tabloid or a sun-driven scandal in that sense. You've actually had the BBC themselves having journalists investigating and finding what they believe to be, because they've reported it, to be evidence of inappropriate conduct. Where does that leave... Hugh Edwards, do you think, in terms of his future at the BBC? And what do you feel about the BBC actually in that situation investigating him in that way? Well, look, I actually think that the BBC has done a pretty good job on reporting a story which is about one of its own very senior presenters. I think anyone who has watched the BBC coverage over the past few days um, must really accept and acknowledge that they've managed to treat this as another story. I have worked at the BBC when there are stories about the BBC. I know how difficult it is, um, but I know that it's a, also a point of pride for the BBC that its journalists try to set aside the fact that it is one of their own that they're talking about and to treat this as another news story. Now, you and I both now work for competitors, um, but we'll know what the challenges are in the journalism of this sort of thing. So uh, I think Tim Davey himself, the director general, uh, has acknowledged that perhaps they need to look again at their complaints process, at the procedures when uh, a complaint against a senior figure is red flagged as something that's very serious, I think, there are perhaps some legitimate questions about whether they moved swiftly enough. But you have to balance that against the fact that there are a huge numbers of complaints made uh, every week about um, BBC figures. Well, there are. And... Look, just to, I think just to pick you up on that, there are, but I don't think there would be many complaints of this severity against the face of BBC News would be my counter. That I still think it's ridiculous. The BBC, in seven weeks after this was reported to them uh, by the family directly about their concerns about what was happening with their son, uh, that it took seven weeks and just one standard email and one phone call that didn't get connected. That was their attempt at following up what was obviously, on the face of it, potentially extremely serious charges, as indeed Tim Davey, the director-general of the BBC, has conceded they were. So I wouldn't necessarily go along, I think, with your uh, de defence of the way the BBC handled it. I actually think it's been a little bit shambolic. But let, just well, yeah, thank well, you for that, Can I just pick you me... up on that point, Piers? Yeah. Because you should sure. also bear in mind that the young person at the centre of the very first allegation, the allegation that uh, Hugh Edwards, as we now know it is, had paid money uh, to someone uh, for explicit images. Uh, the young mm. person at the centre of that said the claims that were made and reported in The Sun about this uh, were rubbish and that there mm. had been nothing illegal or improper that had taken place. So there are also two sides to that, and neither you well, nor are, I, I nor I mean, anyone I would, else listen, knows the truth yeah, of I, that at the moment. Yeah, I don't, I don't have any uh, inside knowledge of what The Sun has in terms of evidence, but what I do know is this young man is clearly uh, pretty damaged. He's uh, apparently a crack cocaine addict, so I'm not entirely sure that we should take everything he may be saying after this um, as, as, you know, I'd love to have him on the programme and talk about it, but I don't think he can. So I think it's, it's complicated. Let me go to David El Elstein, uh, top media executive, used to work at the BBC. David, from a corporate position, as a, as a television executive, 
How do you think the BBC have handled this? And what do they do now about Hugh Edwards? Well, I, I think they've mishandled it, but for a completely different reason. I'm actually quite shocked to discover that the BBC has an internal investigations unit which uh, might inquire into its employees' private lives. I think that's wholly inappropriate. And uh, I'm, I hope the first thing that happens is that that unit is shut down. Uh, look, when the complainant first uh, appeared, uh, they said there has been no, uh, according to the police whom they talked to, there's been no criminality. So what is the BBC meant to do? What, when someone says uh, one of your employees has been sending uh, my child a lot of money, it's not a mm. crime. What, uh, where is the BBC's role in all of this? So to say well, that okay, they were well, let me, slow... OK, well, let, me, let me pick you up on that. On that point, though, does it need to be a crime to still be inappropriate behaviour by the head of BBC News? I, hang on a minute. Uh, how do we know there's inappropriate behaviour and is paying somebody £35,000 inappropriate? I mean, you can afford to pay someone £35,000, I'm sure. Would uh, Talk TV then fire you for doing so? Uh, well, I think it depends. I think, it, I think there, are, there are lots of unanswered questions, I agree. But to my knowledge so far, there's been no denial of the payment of £35,000 to a young person who we know is apparently addicted to crack cocaine. That does well, seem to me to probably stray into the area, if you're running the BBC, of potentially inappropriate conduct by the head of their news division, it, doesn't it? it? It, it, well, he's not the head of the news division, he's their lead presenter. Well, he's the face of it, uh, he's the face of it, yeah. Of course, but if uh, the story, if The Sun publishes stuff which definitively shows that Hugh Edwards did things which uh, bring the BBC into disrepute, of course the BBC would then be entitled to say, you're in breach of contract, we suspend you, we don't renew your contract, we fire you, mm. all of those things. But it's not for the BBC to be an arm of the police, to be an arm of the National Health Service, as was being suggested in the last uh, panel discussion, you know, sending help to drug addicts. How do we know that this young person is a severely damaged crack cocaine addict? We only hear it through the son from his mother and stepmother, and he denies everything that they say. So mm. if I were the BBC, I'd be no further off than the police have been in saying nothing to see here. So okay. my view of uh, this is the BBC were quite wrong to, turn, to allow it to be turned into a BBC story. It was a story about a BBC employee, a big story about a BBC employee. The chances are that he was going to be uh, resigning or taking sick leave or whatever in due course anyway. But for the okay. BBC to insert itself into the investigative process was inappropriate and wrong. OK. David, thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank uh, you, all right. Let's come to my panel here in New York. Douglas, well, you've, heard, you've heard two people there mm. and their views. What's your, what's your view about this story? Um, my view is, is that, I mean, essentially, the British public have been watching on in recent months... It looks like a very bad time to be a television presenter in Britain mm. at the moment, doesn't mm. it? And there's something sort of baffling, I think, to the general public about this. There have been these two massive scandals of two of the most prominent faces in television. Philip Schofield and now Philip Schofield Hugh Edwards. and now Hugh Edwards. 
I do think... I, I think there are lots of things to take in mind. I, I agree with some of what's been said. I mean, effectively, we're back into the old problem of actually... It's a, it's a problem at the BBC of oversight of BBC procedures. Mm -hmm. The BBC, of course, always quite, quite understandably comes into the, the headlights and the, the firing line of everybody else because, you know, everybody's got criticism of the BBC. The BBC always tries to please every party and very often it fails to please any party. Uh, so it seems to be it's something to do with BBC governance and oversight that's the issue here. Uh, I'd say two other things. One is the, the whole thing of, you know, we have to go to mental health hospitals and all this sort of thing. You know, men are idiots, and men are idiots a lot. And I do think that the sort of pathologising of men making mistakes into always having to be a mental health issue is you know, maybe something to be discussed another day. But it is a problem, that. And the second thing I'd just add to that is that whenever we look at a case like this, you know, we've just got to remember that there are a lot of different agendas that are going to go on behind this. There are going to be people who are going to come out with for Team Hugh Edwards. There are going to be not that many at the moment. There are going to be others that come out for, you know, the, the young man. I mean, we just heard of, mm. about the possibility that this young man is a well-adjusted crack cocaine right, addict, I which I, I don't think is very likely at all. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a difficult, ugly and complex story. I don't look to newscasters for to moral guidance. I don't look to them for good behaviour or anything else. But much of the country just doesn't want to know about the private life of Hugh Edwards. It's now out there. And for him, I'd have thought that's just uh, career-wise a terrible place to be in. Louise, I, I think there's a lot of feelings you can have about this. You can feel sorry for Hugh Edwards, that he's in this awful condition. He's in hospital. He's, got, he's a well-documented uh, depressive. He's had problems with this before. On a human level, I know him a bit. I feel sorry for the situation he's in. But I also need to know more about what's been going on before you can, I think, make any broad brushstroke judgments about what he's done wrong and what the BBC should do in response to that, given that he is effectively the face of BBC News. Yeah, I don't think we can muddy the waters here. There are two separate issues. One is he's depressed and he's been depressed for a long time. I'm very sorry for him for that. Genuinely, that's terrible. Mm. What he has done, allegedly, to these vulnerable young people is something else altogether. And listening to your other guests, I wonder if we're reading the same story, because I heard absolutely nothing of concern for the alleged victims that mm. have come forward so far. Also, let me just say right now, it's not true that these allegations, all of the allegations, are unproven. Mm. The second accuser didn't go to the Sun. They went the directly to the BBC mm. and they said, I didn't want to meet up offline, he bullied me, mm. he threatened me, and the BBC themselves reported that they had checked Hugh Edwards, as we now know, phone, and that, yes, indeed, those threatening messages came from him. So if everybody, I think, should stop... Um, feeling sorry for Mr Edwards in terms of what he allegedly did to these mm. people, that's not OK. And I also do think that we have to draw a distinction between conduct that's illegal, which the police say there's no evidence of, and conduct that's unethical and that's immoral. Mm. The BBC is funded by everybody in Britain through the licence fee. If you pay TV, you have to pay the BBC. We do have a right to ask its highest-paid employees that maybe they should have some care for young people, not threaten them, 
not bully them that we know factually did actually happen. Is that OK? Would it be OK in any other organisation? No, and it's interesting to me to see this sort of sun-bashing that's going on mm. uh, against yeah. the, sort of the beastly tabloids doing all this. The BBC have now done two separate exposés yes. of Hugh Edwards in the last 48 hours about his alleged inappropriate behaviour, including today uh, reportedly towards colleagues at the BBC. That's something to do with the sun. Uh, that's to do with the BBC themselves unearthing stuff that they believe is worthy of reporting. So it, it's much more nuanced, I think, than people are trying to make out this is just the sun invading his privacy. I don't think it's as simple as that at all. Kevin, you've been sitting very patiently listening to all this. I guess it, your perspective would be interesting to me is, from a purely business point of view, you've got a guy here, the BBC is a global brand, it's a global brand that really requires trust. It's paid for by the British taxpayer and that carries with it the brand of the BBC total trust, you know, that's his great sort of uh, calling card, if you like. When, when the face of BBC News, the person chosen to announce the death of the monarch, for example, when that person is seen to have behaved in this alleged way in his private life, even if it doesn't stray into criminality, and we still don't know that yet over all these allegations, would the behaviour itself be inappropriate enough for, to justify the BBC firing him? And should they have handled this differently from the moment they first had the allegations come to them? It's the question, because I look at it from several verticals. The BBC as an institution and a brand in the financial markets worldwide is one of the three outlets that all of us listen to every day. Because we look for five major stories to make financial decisions on daily. It starts in North America here at about five in the morning. And the BBC has a different spin on all of them that North American outlets have, or even Canadian. There's an equivalent organization called the CBC in Canada, which is often listened to by New York mm. financial managers as well for, for the North American continent. But this volatility in presenters and columnists mm. on all sides of the pond has been extreme in the last 12 months because we're trying to figure out how do you maintain the brand as you just spoke to the CBC, will this change in any way my viewership, which has now been 50 years? Mm. I've, I've been watching the BBC almost daily for 50 years. Have you really? 50 years. From, I lived in Cyprus for a while, Tunisia, Cambodia, right. Ethiopia. The BBC is where we got our news. Mm. I was globe-hopping for decades. And so, in two weeks, will this make any difference? And the answer is no. Uh, this narrative, in the next 24 hours, is going to shift away from Hugh... Uh, and, and I feel sorry, as, as we all do, the pressure he, um, he must be under. But I'd add this to it. When you dedicate your life to be a presenter mm. um, or a news reader, as we call them here in America, you have to give up certain things. And there's no question about this. If you have flaws in your personality, you're dealing with your own demon because there is no question 100% that one day they will cause your demise as a presenter or a columnist because there is zero tolerance at the institutional level, whether it's BBC or any American network or streaming service. Today, zero tolerance. And the way you can measure this is look at the morality clauses that have made their way into every presenter's Yeah, that's contract. true. Absolutely. I, that's uh, changed uh, in, it, the last in the year. last 36 months. Mm. Every network that puts a presenter on as a contributor, whether they're a columnist or a newsreader, has a morality clause in it, so that you can pull that ripcord and, to the, as the extent that you can, save the institution. Because Hugh, there is no coming back from this, mm. even if half of these allegations are true. 
but he unfortunately will not be part of the narrative in 24 hours. Right. Mm -hmm. Douglas, let me just ask you about the aspect of his sexuality. Here's a, mm -hmm. a guy who's married with five kids. He's talked about being a regular churchgoer and so on, and he appears to have been, you know, having some kind of relationship with young mm -hmm. men. And uh, we don't know the exact nature of what that is, but apparently he was exchanging for money, uh, for sexually explicit pictures and so on. That's one of the reasons why he wasn't named mm. originally, was because you can't out people uh, right. in this day and age, the media, and they would get into big trouble if they did. So, in a way, he was sort of oddly protected in that sense for a few As days. As was Philip Schofield. Uh, well, for a while, yeah, and, and that is a, a concern. Should it matter... I mean, if you're Hugh Edwards and you're presenting the news... Should it matter mm. if you have a confused sexuality, if you're leading a double life, whatever? Does that actually matter to your ability to read the news and be trusted to do so? Well, I don't think so. I mean, as I said, I think there's a, there's a problem, always a problem in the BBC about oversight. And the BBC always gets into trouble because it tries to cover things over. You know, that, that's been the case historically. And it is a taxpayer-funded institution. It's different from other media. And so perhaps it's right to have a different set of expectations. But as, as for the sort of, as it were, morality thing, as I said mm. before, and I, I don't look to newsreaders for morality, but there's something very strange that is going on in Britain at the moment. I've actually written my column about this in The Spectator this week, is um, the, the, the public behave in a different way to the expectations we have of a lot of public figures. Mm. I mean, a lot of the public are on dating apps, for instance. Yes. If it's true that Hugh Edwards was on a dating app and nothing illegal happened... Mm. Uh, do we expect... Well, then he's really only accountable, isn't he, Louise, to his wife and family? Exactly. Isn't he's he? accountable to Ultimately, them. I mean... Absolutely, but here's where I object to people saying this is about Hugh Edwards' private life. Mm. No, it isn't. If Hugh Edwards had just had uh, a boyfriend, a male lover, and uh, everything was free and equal between them, then it's none of our beeswax, absolutely, and the BBC shouldn't be looking into it. Those aren't the allegations. Mm. It's not an allegation about Hugh Edwards' private life. It's an allegation of causing harm to others, bullying, threatening, and so forth. That's where it steps out of your private life, whatever your sexuality. And, and again, just to repeat, whatever. all those allegations are coming from the BBC themselves right. and their own independent investigations into their star presenter. And I think when the media trial starts, as it already is, yeah, fine, if you want to try and criticise the son who never named him, but the BBC have been doing their own reporting and unearthing material they believe is worthy of reporting of his alleged inappropriate uh, behaviour, including to BBC colleagues. The BBC should thank the son mm. for doing the job that they themselves so woefully failed to do. Mm. The second accuser who came directly to the BBC wouldn't have come forward if the first story hadn't broken right. the son. Thank you to my panel. Great to see you, Kevin. Thank you very much Thank indeed you. for coming on. I appreciate you pivoting to this big story coming out of our pond. But as you say, you've been a BBC viewer for 50 years, so probably nobody more expert to talk about it. So I appreciate you joining us today. And thank you to Douglas and to Louise. I appreciate it. Well, uncensored next, RFK Jr. has been called the black sheep of America's most famous political dynasty. He's also, though, shaking up the race for the White House. And he joins me live. Can he be the next president of the United States? Well, we'll find out after the break. Piers Morgan Uncensored, live from New York City. You're seeing the Statue of Liberty there. And, of course, that is the symbol of freedom and democracy in the United States. And nothing symbolises that more than the presidential race. My next guest is shaking up the race for the White House. He's come from 
pretty well nowhere to be an insurgent challenger to President Biden. And when he speaks, people are listening. He's a Kennedy, a controversialist, and now a candidate for President of the United States. RFK Jr. is seen by some as the black sheep of America's most famous political dynasty. Both his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, and his father, Robert F. Kennedy, were assassinated. Robert Jr. blames the CIA. Congress found that, yeah, it was a plot. It was a conspiracy. Just as he blames vaccines for autism and Wi-Fi for cancer. Wi-Fi radiation is, uh, does all kinds of bad things, including causing cancer. But while some cry conspiracy, many simply see a leader who's ready to rot the establishment and is paying off. 49% of respondents say Democrat presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is viewed favorably by voters higher than President Biden. The wannabe podcast president is winning over liberals tired of Biden and Republicans tired of Trump. But is this ripped renegade really ready to be president? <laughs> well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins me now. Great to see you. Great to meet you. Great to meet you. I interviewed you uh, a few weeks ago, the very start of all this. I've got to say, you're having a great race. I mean, this is really for you, I would say, of all the candidates on either side, you're the one getting most attention. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, so far so good. I'm, um, I think me and my whole team are very happy with how things are going. We're getting tremendous traction all over the country. Our polling data shows... Uh, you know, me um, surging, so we're happy. Let me ask you, because viewers were asking me last time, what's up with his voice? They didn't know, they didn't know you, they hadn't heard you speak before. Let's talk about that. What is the issue with your voice? I had a very, I had a very, very strong voice until I was 42 years old. In 1996, I had an injury uh, that caused a neurological disorder called spasmodic dystonia. And it makes my voice like this. I cannot listen to my voice. I, when I go home, I will not listen to this program. Really? I, I can't do it. And I f feel sorry for the people in your audience who have to listen to me, but <laughs> this, this is the best I've got right now. But I am, you know, I went over with my wife, Cheryl Hines, to do a surgery in Kyoto mm -hmm. in Japan about... Uh, eight months ago, and it made my voice a lot more reliable, and I, now I'm doing a bunch of alternative uh, sort of therapies that make it, I, I think, are they're making it a lot stronger. So we'll see what happens. Because you must be, when you're on the trail like this, you're doing so many interviews and, and stumpings and so on, I mean, you use your voice all the time. Does it worry you that it may just sort of pack up? Or you... No, because my voice actually doesn't get weaker when I use it. It gets stronger. Really? Yeah, because it's not it's not tissue injury. So my my you know my vocal cords are very very strong. It's just the neurological signals that are being sent to them are uh, are telling them to tighten up all the time, and it makes my voice gravelly. But I can talk twenty hours a day, and my voice won't wear out. So I'm not worried about that. But <laughs> well, I, tell I don't you what, like the way it sounds, and I you know I apologize to everybody. I don't think any audience. apology is necessary. I think people are just curious. <laughs> um, and actually, it's what comes out of your voice that's more interesting and more relevant to the fact that you want to be president. You come from American royalty, the Kennedy family. Obviously, they've had a president. They've had others who were running for president. Uh, why do you want to be president? What's your burning focus here as to why well, you, you know, want to be president? I, I, was, I did not spend my lifetime 
or thinking about someday I'm going to run for president, I, a bunch of things happened, particularly since COVID. Over the last 18 years, I've been subject to a lot of censorship on the issue of vaccines. So most people, think, you know, call me, people call me anti-vaccine, but I'm not anti-vaccine. And I'm called that in order to silence me. And I've been silenced in, you know, many, many ways for, for the last 18 years, but particularly since COVID, when there was blanket censorship around the country um, and in the UK and everywhere, people, you know, doctors who were reporting uh, injuries in their patients from the vaccines or reporting success from early treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were all silenced because that was not part of the political narrative. And the frustration, that censorship, and now, you know, there was a case that, a uh, 155-page uh, opinion that was issued earlier this week by a judge um, in Missouri um, about uh, uh, enjoining the White House from censoring people anymore. And it's a, a large part of that decision is about the censorship of me by the Biden White House. I was the first person censored. So the Biden came into office on January 21st, 2021, and on January 23rd, Twitter and the other social media sites refused or uh, um, received orders from the White House to deplatform me, and then three I mean, I certainly later. think that a lot of the censorship that went on during COVID on, on many fronts was completely wrong, looking back over it, and shouldn't have been happening. Can, let me just ask you, have you ever had a vaccine for anything? Have I had vaccines? Yeah. I, I was fully compliant. What have you in had fact, in your life? I mean, vaccines. What? Well, I had all the vaccines. You know, when I was a kid, I took the three vaccines with, mm. that were then required. Now, my kids' generation, there are 72 vaccines required in this country, 72 doses of 16 vaccines. But I was traveling a lot as a kid. I went to Africa, Latin America, and everything. So I received that entire battery that you used to receive. So I probably received more vaccines than most people in my generation. And your kids, have, and by your the kids way, all have vaccines. My my kids were all fully vaccinated right. now. So you're not intrinsically anti-vaccine. No, I was never anti-vaccine. All I want is is the safety science. I think that we should have placebo-controlled trials, which are required for every other medical product prior to licensing vaccines. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, vaccines are exempt from those. They're the only medicine or medical product that are exempt from pre-licensing safety trials. And, you know, and therefore, we do not know what the risk profile for any of these products are. And we do not know for any particular of those 72 doses whether they are averting more problems than they're causing. And I just think we ought to know that. I also don't believe that we should have mandates. I think, you know, medicine, the government should not be... Well, I certainly think once, the, once it was established that it, you could transmit the virus, COVID, whether you've been vaccinated or not, then it becomes a personal choice. Right. I think that, that once that was established, to me, that argument about mandated was, was nonsensical. Let's take a short break. I don't want to spend the whole interview talking about vaccines. You tend to do that a, a lot, probably not through I, I, choice. Not, not through choice. Not through choice. So we've done that. Let's come back and talk about, about you. I know you're a falconer. You like whitewater rafting. You like a thrill and a, and a danger in your life. I want to get into that after the break. More from Robert Kennedy Jr. But his hawks and his white water rafting. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Welcome back to Piers Morgan Uncensored, live from New York City. I'm with my guest, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. What was the best and worst thing about being a Kennedy? I, I, you know, I, I think the good vastly outweighs the bad. Uh, I, I, I don't see anything to complain about, honestly. You know, I think there's been so many, I feel so blessed. I feel a privilege to be a member of this family and... You know, not only because of the uh, sort of the, the cash and prize, the, the connections that you have and the access and the education, and then it's, you know, I have 11 brothers and sisters yeah. and 29 cousins, and we all love each other. And are, and you argue a lot, right? I mean, you... Oh, yeah, we were, <laughs> we were trained to argue, um, and my, my grandfather did that with his nine kids. Mm. He would make them, you know, every night at the dinner table take opposite... Uh, yeah, I do that with my kids. Uh, I think it's healthy. Yeah, I think it is too. And I, you know, I think you need to, we ne- we need to learn to talk with each other, dispute, have conversation and discourse without hating each other. I totally know? agree. This this <laughs> you know, I came from an era it, when I was young. You go down the pub and you'd have an argument and you'd buy each other a pint. And that was it. You didn't uh, fall out with people because you disagreed with them. Well, um, you know, my uncle, Teddy Kennedy. <laughs> who is in the Senate for 50 years, and he has more legislation attached to his name than any senator in United States history. And the reason for that is he was—he had so many friends on the Republican side of the aisle. He'd come home on weekends to the Cape, where we all live in kind of a communal group, and he'd bring Orrin Hatch, who is, you know, yeah. to us, kind of a right-wing Darth Vader, and spend the, you know, we'd spend the weekend on a boat with mm. him, and you know, to see Teddy laughing with him and really just enjoying and loving. That's how these it should guys. be. It's and, how it should be. Um, and he never compromises values. Right. But you he, don't have to. But you can, no. you can certainly have your views challenged by people that don't agree without losing your mind. Let me ask you. I mean, you, Robert, you were nine when your uncle, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. You were fourteen when your father, was assassinated. They're very formative years. I've, I've got three sons who both, you know, all three of them came through those ages. Very formative years for such cataclysmic things to happen. What, what impact do you think those two huge events had on your life? Well, you know, I think they were national traumas and they were part of the national traumas. You know, they were basically kind of five or six traumas. Uh, Martin Luther King's death, my uncle and my father, the Vietnam War. Uh, the, and uh, 9-11 and COVID that pushed our country in a bad direction down the road to be, you know, the military-industrial complex and, and to become a kind of a surveillance state at home. But from my own personal point of view, you know, my mom told us something when we were really young, told me something when one of my brothers died. And I said to her, does, that, does the hole that they leave in you when they die, does that ever get any smaller? And she said, no, it never gets any smaller. But our job is to grow ourselves bigger around the hole by taking the best parts of that, the best virtues of that person who died 
and trying to incorporate them into your own life, into your own character as part of the mourning process. And that builds you bigger as a person, so the whole proportionally gets smaller. And I think all of us in my family tried to do that. We were also schooled from when we were very little to never complain. Mm. To, you know, that my mother would say to us, there are kids in Harlem and in Watts and in Compton who lose their mother and their father, and they don't have the family we have, and they don't have the educational opportunities, and, you know, everybody takes their licks in life, and, you know, they, you have to have a mission, and you have to keep moving, take the best parts of that person. Let me ask you about your father, then. Do you feel, I mean, he was, for many people, the greatest president America sadly never had. My uncle. Oh, my father. Your okay. father, your father. Uh, what do you think you gained from him? And do you feel his spirit guiding you now as you run for president? Yeah, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time, I think, unlike other members of my family who are, who, many of them are so shattered, even to this day, that they can't um, really think about my dad's, uh, you know, death or, or my Uncle Jack. Um, but I've spent a lot of time kind of reading all the literature and studying their lives, and I... Uh, I'm constantly uh, delighted and, and surprised by how much of, um, of their, uh, their values have, stood, have withstood the, the test of time. And I think, you know, my campaign right now is about recalling America to those values. That and what are they? Party. Summarize them. Well, you know, all of the kind of traditional values of the Democratic Party, which are free speech, you know, a, a love for the Constitution, um, a, a, a protecting the environment, our, the Purple Mountains Majesty for our children, protecting uh, that government has a role, protecting the rights of minorities and for uh, people who are underrepresented in the political process. Um, women's right, bodily autonomy, you know, um, the, that... that Smaller government is, and, and more freedom is always better. You know, the word liberal means freedom. Mm. And it's, uh, it's it, and that the, this idea that democracy and that, you know, freedom from a totalitarian system fosters human growth and human creativity. So a love of the arts, which is the highest aspiration of, uh, you know, of democracy. Mm -hmm. My uncle used to say that, um, that, you know, nobody really remembers the names of the generals in the Peloponnesian Wars and the, and the battles, you know. But everybody remembers the, the poems of Aeschylus and the plays of Sophocles and, um, and the art and the sculpture and the, and the, you know, and the literature, the beauty of the, um, of, the, uh, of the architecture of ancient Greece, and that that really is the ultimate aspiration of a, of a democratic society to create things that are enduring and that elevate the human spirit. Let's take a short break, come back and talk about what arts you're good at then, because I know it involves white water kayaking and falconry. <laughs> what else do you do, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? We'll find out after the break. Welcome back to Piers Morgan Uncensored, looking at the Empire State Building here in Manhattan in New York. And I'm still with the presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Well, we left the viewers on a cliffhanger. <laughs> what are your artistic bents? What are you, where do you find your cultural solace? Uh, 
well, what do you mean? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not particularly talented as an artist. Mm -hmm. Let me put that out there. <laughs> That's not a big disappointment for <laughs> people. But I, you know, I love, like, I'm, a, I have eclectic taste in music, and I love uh, art and art history and going to museums and, you know, uh, so. But I, 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 I admire it, but I'm not very good at. But falconry is a big thing in your life. Yeah, I. I what do you get from falconry? I have always had an affinity for the outdoors mm. and for nature and for me. You know, I read when my uncle was in the White House, there were a lot of people talking about Camelot, and I read T.H. White's book, The Sword or The Once and Future King, who's a British uh, falconer and an incredible writer. And it's about the story of young King Arthur, and there was a chapter there on falconry, on training hawks, which was very popular, you know, in the Middle Ages. It was the most popular sport. And when I read that chapter, I fell in love with it, and I became obsessed with it. And as it turned out, there was a guy who lived about a, a mile from my house who was one of the great pioneers of American falconry. His name was Alvin Nye, and my father knew about him. He was a... Uh, uh, designing jets for the Pentagon, but the, uh, the, my father knew about them because the State Department, whenever they were visiting Arab dignitaries, they would send them to this guy's house because the Arabs are crazy for falconry. Um, and so I was able, because of my father's contact with them, I was able to apprentice under him, and I learned falconry beginning when I was nine years What's old. What's it given you, falconry? It's, uh, you know, you're... It's like being... Uh, you're. You're with a, a predatory bird, and you're hunting in the wild. Usually, I hunt with two birds at a time. And it's like being allowed. They're, they don't change their behavior any. any they're, they're doing nothing that they wouldn't do in the wild. Right. But you're observing them close up, so it's like being allowed to hunt with a wolf pack. Mm. You know, where, and who wouldn't want to do that? To and do you see, and you see a, a, an analogy to what you're doing now to the... The other Democratic <laughs> candidates? <laughs> Not really. Are you hunting <laughs> Joe Biden down like a wolf? No, pack? but you know, I, I, preserving the environment and giving other kids the opportunity to, to enjoy the richness of those kind of experience of the outdoors is one of the, I'd say, the spirit tip of my campaign that we need to. You know, well, the other spirit of your campaign is your your youthful vigor, and we've seen some uh, tremendous videos of you here in action. <laughs> working out here, which has got everyone going. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we look at this and we see a man in peak physical condition. Um, congratulations. But we also <laughs> are reminded of uh, President Biden's, let's put it kindly, lack of comparative physical condition. How concerned are you, never mind the race, but how concerned are you when you see President Biden now in public, the sheer volume of missteps, both verbal and physical, does it concern you as an American that the president seems to be... No, I, I don't really think that I have any uh, additional wisdom to contribute to that debate. I, I think that uh, I don't... I haven't seen President Biden in a couple of years. And I don't know... You know, I see... I saw him trip on the stage, but, you know, anybody can... As you know, mm. anybody can trip on a stage. And, uh, and so I don't really know what his condition is. There are worrying... Um, you know, videos and stuff, but... Uh, but do I, you sense that he may not actually r run in 2024 I, when I it comes know. to it? And is that why you think you actually have a real chance of potentially becoming the Democrat nominee? I think I have a chance of becoming the Democratic nominee because my numbers 
are better at beating Republicans than him. Mm. So, and I think that's what the Democrats. Should the party make him stand aside for you? Well, I, you know, that's not, first of all, that's not going to happen. Oh, but doesn't uh, that have to happen to let you? No, him? no. I mean, I, I have to win some primaries. And you think you can actually beat him yeah, in primaries? I think I can beat him in the primaries. I mean, it'd be incredible. I mean, pretty much unprecedented if you do that, right, to an incumbent president. It's. Uh, I, I think. I think Reagan did that against uh, Gerald Ford. Right. Oh, but um, yeah. I mean, it's unusual. But you know, my father ran against an incumbent president, and he would have won. Um, and uh, you know, my uncle Teddy ran against incumbent President Carter and and lost. And do you actually he won, believe he won? Uh, he won something like thirty-seven states. Do you actually time. believe that in twenty twenty-four, when we get to December, January, you will be the person I, on inauguration day addressing the American people? Okay, I'm going to be very uh, objective about this, but I'm telling you that we have a few seconds left. If I had to put money and bet on any candidate, I would put it on me. That's good enough. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a great pleasure to meet you. If I was a gambling man. Well, I'm a gambling man. I might have a pot myself. Good to see you. Uh, whatever you're up to, keep it uncensored. Good night. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.